Psalm 31. Psalm 31. A psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. As they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call on you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Little theologians, as you listen to the sermon this morning, I want you to draw a picture of something. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but I want you to draw a picture of something that needs to be fixed. 
something that's broken that needs to be fixed. You choose. And by the way, wives, you are not allowed during the sermon to add to your honeydew list. Okay? Just, I'm just saying. I love to fix things. My dad could fix anything. And I think I inherited a little bit of that, maybe not as much as I'd like. But when I think about fixing things, I think about, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago, I was traveling to a conference in Nigeria, and we're traveling along the the wonderful Nigerian roads going like this around the potholes, and we went up over a particularly large speed bump. Why they have speed bumps on potholed roads, I don't know. But we went up over a large speed bump and everything on the car stopped. The lights went out, the engine stopped, everything. The driver, very calmly, got out of the car, opened the hood, walked over to the side of the road and picked up a rock came back and began banging things under the hood with the rock. And I'm thinking, no! The car started. (laughs) When I try to fix something, it's just as likely to be like that guy with the rock. I might just as easily break it and make it worse. (sighs) Because I can't fix everything. And neither can you. Here in the psalm, David is talking about some situations he can't fix. He is praying. He is crying out to God. You heard it. He's complaining to God. Uh, We could call it perhaps sanctified complaining because it's in the Bible, but it's still complaining. And he's saying to God, why is this going on? He's also preaching to himself reminding himself about God and about who God is and about what God has done, while at the same time honestly confessing to you and to me in our ears, 3,000 years later, we hear David saying, you know what, I struggle with discouragement. I struggle even at times with depression. I know. (laughs) We're not supposed to talk about that stuff. But it's real. And it happens, even in the lives of God's people. So I want to talk about three things. This is easy for you to remember, I hope. I want to talk, first of all, about reality. Because there's a lot of reality in this psalm. I want to talk secondly about refuge. What do you do in the face of reality? Refuge. 
And then thirdly, I want to talk about very quickly at the end, rejoicing. Because there's a lot of rejoicing in this psalm as well. I don't know if it struck you as strange, but it seems like as I read this psalm, there are successive waves of discouragement that hit David. It's almost like he just gets over one and the next one hits. And so you watch as he writes poetically, you watch him dealing with the realities of life. Now remember, this is God's word. Remember that David wrote this up so that it would be sung in public worship. Remember that the next time you think God doesn't understand. Because he deliberately included this psalm and many others like it in the word of God. So let's talk about reality. David says over in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is one of those verses we really don't even want to hear. We would rather hear what many pulpits proclaim, which is once you come to Jesus, all your problems go away. It's not true. It's not true. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Why does God do this? Well, the second half of that verse in Psalm 34 tells us, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The afflictions are there to teach us something about God, something we would not learn otherwise. And so David begins to tell us about his afflictions. You see, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is hostile to righteousness. It's hostile to godliness. And so afflictions are brought sovereignly by God to wean us from that world. But just look at the afflictions that David talks about in this psalm. Verse 7, he has affliction. That's just sort of a general complaint, but distress of soul. Verse 9, wasting away and grief. Verse 10, sorrow, sighing, sickness, iniquity. Verses 11 and 12, reproach, forsaken, forgotten by friends. Verse 13, plotting of enemies and threat of death. Did he miss anything? Something going on in your life, David, didn't at least mention somehow? This is just, it's overwhelming. Distress inwardly and outwardly as he looks at his situation and he can't fix any of it. David is also, and I, I love this about the word of God, David is brutally honest about these afflictions and how they affect him. 
If you look in down in verse 21, he gives us a metaphor for how he feels. Now, I'm not quite the liter- literature guy that our senior pastor is, but I do know what a metaphor is, right? Um, he gives us a metaphor in verse 21, and look at this. He says, God has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. A besieged city. And it's not necessarily something that we would do, we would come up with as a metaphor. But this is a very common picture for David. David's a warrior. If you read his history, he's always besieging some city or on occasion in a city that's being besieged. Here's what it's like when you're in a besieged city. The city has a wall around it and the army that is besieging you is all around you. You are cut off. You are trapped. You are closed in. You are separated from any help from outside. You have dwindling resources and diminishing hope of deliverance. The enemy is at the gates and you're fighting on every front. Does that sound familiar? It does to me. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 22. He says, I said, in my alarm, it could be haste, either one fits, I am cut off from your sight. God doesn't even notice what's going on. And then back up in verse 13. Terror on every side. Everywhere I look, I'm afraid. David can't fix his circumstances. David can't even control his own attitude and reaction toward the circumstances. And so it seems that he finds himself in an unresolvable situation. What do you do when you can't fix it? What do you do when the situation is so bad Well, here's the fear that David has. And you see it twice in this psalm. He's afraid that he has been delivered over into the enemy's hands. Now, remember, this is poetry. And what he's fearful of is that his hope is vain. This is the temptation that he's been hit with. That he's going to be delivered over into the hands of the enemy. Not just his physical enemies, but our great enemy, Satan. The circumstances are such that he's tempted to conclude that he's lost. It seems as if the enemy has him in his hand, but by faith, and this is faith, David declares it is not true. I am not in the enemy's hands. You have not delivered me into their hands. So what's the other option? Well, we're Americans. The other option is to take matters into our own hands. And that's sort of implied in this. As David goes through and complains about his circumstances, to take matters into our own hands. 
to focus on self-reliance, self-determination, turning inward, relying on our own resources. I can handle this. I can do this. I don't know about you. Well, I know about some of you. But for me, this never works out well. It never does. I take things in my own hands, and it's like the guy with the rock. I'm just banging around at things, hoping something I do, something I think, something I say will fix it. Now, on occasion, it does, by the grace of God. But most of the time, no. I just break things. What does David do? David puts himself in God's hands. When he can't fix it, he puts himself in God's hands. So that's reality. Now let's talk about refuge because that's what God's hands are. The reality is that great distress is very common in the lives of God's people. As I look out, and I know many of you, and I know some of the circumstances in your life, and they're not pretty. It's common in the lives of God's people. But what David is teaching us is this. We have a refuge. We don't have to handle these things on our own. In fact, it's foolish for us to try. The refuge is the hands of God. So David talks about hands, pictures of God's imminence, his presence with us, pictures of God's power, We, as New Testament believers, we need to see these hands as the hands of Jesus. That David is committing himself into God's hands. What kind of hands? Verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Redeeming hands. Redeeming hands. David fears being put to shame. And as you study, this, this by the way, comes up often in David's Psalms. This question of don't let me be put to shame. And what's behind this is the fear that his hope is misplaced. That somehow he's hoped in God and God's not going to come through after all. You understand that? You have that thought occasionally? Maybe this one, the prayer's not going to work. And God's not going to come through. Well, David's in a besieged city. He's under siege by the enemy. He's feeling oppressed. He's feeling cut off. He can't find God. But at the same time, he says, into your hands, 
I commit my spirit. I think this first wave, if you will, was a wave of spiritual distress. As David inwardly is struggling with the attacks of the enemy, tempting him, assaulting him, going after his hope. But look at what he says. This is, this is really interesting. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Verse 7. Why? Because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. Spurgeon says this about this passage. God owns his saints when others are ashamed to acknowledge them. He never refuses to know his friends. He thinks not the worse of them for their rags and tatters. He does not misjudge them and cast them off when their faces are lean with sickness or their hearts heavy with despondency. God sees us at our worst and loves us no less. This is David's hope. And so he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I want you to understand that this is the gospel. This is the gospel. David has spiritual struggle that he cannot resolve, he cannot fix. He has a need that he cannot provide. So where does he turn? In his extremity, not to his own hands, definitely not to the enemy. He turns instead to God and he says, in your hands, I commit my spirit. Now this may sound like a familiar phrase. It ought to. This is the very verse that Jesus quoted on the cross as he bore your sin and my sin, as he carried the guilt and the separation and the alienation from God in that time of darkness, he quotes this verse. What can I do except commit my spirit into your hands. But they're not just redeeming hands, they're also ruling hands. Look over at verses 14 and 15. This is sort of the second wave. David gets over it and then it comes right back again. And in the second wave, he says, I'll go back to 13. I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side. This is, this is outward attacks, not inward as much as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon me. These are the ruling hands. These are the hands of Jesus, the King. 
the hands that control everything, the hands that rule over all of your life. I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times, my circumstances are in your hands. And so David teaches us a lesson about refuge. That in our circumstances, when things become so overwhelming and we cannot fix them, we place them in God's hands. Whether it's inward distress or outward affliction, we place these things in God's hands. But I want to warn you, we don't do that with the thought that he's just going to fix it right away. His ways are not our ways. And sometimes an immediate fix is not his will. Sometimes he lets it go on and on and on. Why? Our comfort is not necessarily God's priority. His priority is to teach us dependence. We were created to be dependent. Independence is actually our rebellion against him. I don't have time to talk about American culture. But he seeks to teach us dependence, and the way to do that is by placing us in circumstances we can't fix. Overwhelming circumstances and then as it were he stands with his hands outstretched and he says come to me come to me I will be your refuge I will be your rock I will be your fortress in all of this it may not change outwardly but I will carry the burden. You don't have to. And this leads us then to the third point, the rejoicing. It's almost, it's almost like you get whiplash as you read this psalm, right? I mean, David starts out by complaining and complaining and it's a problem and look at all of this and it's just terrible, but how wonderful the Lord's love is. And it does that at least twice in the course of the psalm. And what he's doing is he's teaching us this, that when we take advantage of the refuge that God offers us, when we find him to be our fortress, that God's hands turn distress into praise. And they turn fear into courage. So in verses 7 and 8, he says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. You've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. 
verses 19 and 20. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Now, understand something. David's circumstances have not changed. What's changed? What's changed is who's holding those circumstances, whose hands are holding them. It's not David's hands anymore. It's God's hands. God's redeeming and ruling, loving hands. So David closes this psalm with some lessons. If this was a sermon instead of a prayer, he would say, now for my last point, I want to make some conclusions for you. So for my last point, I want to share David's conclusions with you. First of all, he says this, love the Lord. Love the Lord. It almost seems like a non sequitur. I've gone through all of this and this struggle and the besieged city and I thought you had forsaken me in terror on every side. Love the Lord. Why? Because you're one of his saints. He is using these circumstances to sanctify you. To make you more like Christ. So love him. Because Strange as it seems at times, your circumstances are his love for you and show you his love. Not only that, but he says, trust him and trust his timing. He will preserve you. He will repay the wicked. Judgment is coming. Trust him. Trust his timing. And be strong and courageous while you wait. Remember, your soul and your circumstances are always in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we can identify with David. We understand the part about the sanctified complaining. We understand the part even about trying to place these things in your hands, but we find it difficult many times to truly love you and trust you in these difficult circumstances. Open our eyes to see your love. Strengthen our faith to give us hope. And may our hope not cause us to be ashamed as we wait upon you. For we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.